I invite you to turn with me once again to Mark. Mark chapter 14 is what we'll be looking at this morning. Verses 43 to 52. We're coming down to the end. We've got a few more sermons left in the book of Mark. But here we see Jesus being arrested. Mark 14, 43 to 52. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word and write its truth upon our hearts today. Well, I've entitled uh, this sermon, A Revolutionary with No Sword. Was Jesus uh, a revolutionary? Now, the reason I am asking this question is because Jesus asks a question in this text that we've just read. In verse 48, it says, uh, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Now, that word translated robber here uh, and elsewhere in the New Testament is, uh, and that's, that's a, a correct translation, but it is also used for the name for a person who engages in insurrection. So uh, Jesus may have been saying, and I think he was saying, have you come out as against a, an insurrectionist or a rebel or a revolutionary with clubs and swords? And I believe that there's good evidence to translate uh, this word that way. And I think if you have, I think the NIV version translated, translates it to reflect this nuance of that word. And I think it's correct. And here's the evidence. There's a, there's a number of reasons why I would translate it thus in our passage. Uh, first of all, a mere robber would not get this kind of treatment. I mean, this is a crowd of soldiers, it tells us, uh, probably the temple guard, maybe even some of the, the Roman cohort. I believe it uh, tells us that in John. So he's got this mob of soldiers and probably others coming after him. Uh, they're armed, and they're, they're armed uh, to reflect that maybe they're going to meet some armed resistance. If you're just a robber, you, you probably, uh, they would not be expecting such armed resistance that would require such a large amount of armed soldiers. And why did Judas have to give them a sign uh, why did he go up and say, you know, the one that I kiss, that's the man you're after? Why could he just walk up to Jesus and say, well, there, that's Jesus right there, so you can arrest him? Well, the reason is, at least I believe the reason is, 
was that they were expecting a fight. Uh, they are thinking of Jesus and his followers as revolutionaries. And he is coming up to him trying to take Jesus unaware. If he walks up naturally, says rabbi, and kisses him, which was the common greeting of the day, uh, then Jesus and the, the disciples would not be suspicious and they could be arrested without a fight. Now, of course, the disciples weren't looking for a fight, except maybe Peter, uh, who we know is the one who starts swinging the sword here in a, in a moment. But uh, they come to him uh, expecting there to be some resistance that you would get from uh, a group of insurrectionists. Now, of course, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. They did not have the authority to kill him because they were a province of Rome and only the Romans could uh, declare capital punishment or the death penalty on someone. So when they take him to Pontius Pilate, uh, the, the charge of blasphemy, which is what they charged him with when the Jews tried Jesus, that was not enough to get him put to death. The Romans didn't care uh, if, if Jesus was guilty of blasphemy or not. But if you accuse him of fighting against Rome or starting a political movement in lieu of Rome, then that was something that they would be concerned about. So we read in Luke, it says that they began to accuse him, these are the Jewish leaders uh, speaking to Pontius Pilate, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And of course, when, G when uh, Pontius Pilate questions Jesus, the first thing he asks, are you the king of the Jews? Do you style yourself the king of the Jews? He is interested in whether or not Jesus is staging an uprising against Rome. And of course, when Pilate does appear before the people, and he gives the crowd a choice, Barabbas or Jesus. I, I free someone uh, every year at Passover uh, as a sign of goodwill. Uh, do you want Jesus or Barabbas? And Mark tells us, next chapter, verse 7, uh, that Barabbas was a rebel in prison. He had committed murder in the insurrection. So Barabbas was an insurrectionist. And then, my last bit of evidence is the fact that they crucified him. They were not in the habit of crucifying plain old robbers. Crucifixion was the punishment for political offenders. In fact, shortly after Jesus was born... Herod, the one that had sought to put Jesus to death, he himself died, and that was what allowed Jesus to re return to Nazareth from Egypt. When Herod died, that was a signal to all the insurrectionists in Judea to stage uprisings. And there were innumerable disorders in Judea when Herod died. One such disorder was put down by the Romans, and these insurrectionists were made an example 2,000 of them were crucified alongside the roads in Judea in order to warn the population that revolts in Rome's sphere of operation would not be tolerated. So crucifixion was the, was the form of punishment for people who were political enemies of Rome. And of course the Bible tells us that he was crucified between two robbers. Well, that's the same word that's used here. These men, 
as well. They weren't just thieves. They were political opponents of Rome. They were crucified with Jesus because of their politics. So was Jesus a revolutionary? That's what he's being accused of here. And I would say, of course he wasn't. Not in the sense that the Romans took him to be. He was not a political enemy of Rome. And in fact, one of the Gospels tells us about Jesus' interaction, gives us a bit more detail about the interaction between Jesus and Pontius Pilate. And Jesus goes on to explain the nature of his kingdom. That his kingdom is not of this world. And that's when Pontius Pilate says, well, I see no guilt in this man. And he wants to free him. But he offers up Barabbas thinking, how could they free this guy? He's a known murderer, a known insurrectionist. But they choose Jesus instead. So yes, Jesus was not a revolutionary in the sense that the Romans took him to be. But I would say that in another sense, he was and is a revolutionary. What is a revolutionary? Well, revolutionaries are seeking a regime change. You think about our own American Revolution. Uh, our forefathers rebelled against England because of the tyrannous behavior of King George and his government and how they treated the United States or the colonies at that time. So our forefathers wanted a new government with new policies and different values than King George and his government was espousing, and they rebelled. They, they started a revolution, and they got a regime change. They got a country with completely different values, uh, political values, than England had at that day. And I would say that Jesus was indeed, of course he said himself, that, when, that he is bringing in a new kingdom. Uh, when he began his ministry, the first thing that he said was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's announcing a new kingdom with an entirely different value system. And of course we read that value system today when we looked at Luke chapter 6. Values entirely different from the world's values. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who mourn and weep. Blessed are you when people hate you. I mean, these are not things that we naturally would value. But Jesus does, and in his kingdom, those are the things that are valued. Rejoice when people persecute you. Woe to you if you're rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who laugh. These, we would think, are the blessings. These are the things that we would naturally value. And we wouldn't certainly love our enemies... But that's what Jesus calls his people in his kingdom to do, to love his enemies, do good, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who cursed you, pray for those who abuse you. Lend, expecting nothing in return. Now, th these are not our values, naturally. but They're the values of Christ's kingdom. So Christ wasn't taking up arms to start a revolution against Rome, but he is ushering in, he is causing a revolution. He's bringing in a regime change. His kingdom is going to come through love and mercy and sacrifice for others. And you know, when you look at the early church, you see that happening. The early days of Christianity, as it spread throughout the Roman uh, Empire, Christians, through their deeds of love and mercy, 
They were the ones who provided an example. And the funny thing is, they were so quick to put Christ down and to, to crucify Christ as a, a political offender to Rome in just a short period of time, a couple of centuries, we see the Roman Empire embracing Christianity, and it becomes the state religion of the Roman Empire. The disciples are called those who turn the world upside down in the book of Acts because they began to understand what Christ, uh, what he valued, and, and, and what his kingdom was all about. And I think that's why he says what he says in verse 49. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. He says, if you want to accuse me of being a revolutionary, you know, if you really wanted to nail me to the wall about being a revolutionary, you could have come and arrested me in the temple when I was teaching what I was teaching. Those revolutionary ideas, that you're supposed to love your enemies, that you're supposed to pray for those who persecute you, those are his revolutionary ideas. That's when he could be accused of being a revolutionary. But the disciples here, we see, still did not understand. Yes, they're going to understand. It's going to be after the resurrection, uh, after Jesus ascends to heaven, they're going to start to, to get it as Jesus appears to them for those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, and he begins to explain about his kingdom, and they begin to understand what it's all about. But we see here, the disciples not even understanding all that Jesus has been teaching about his kingdom. Peter, John tells us, identifies the, the sword bearer as Peter. He takes up his sword and he starts whacking away. And uh, I'm sure it's not because of his skilled swordsmanship that he chops off the, uh, the, the ear of the servant of the high priest, a fellow by the name of Malchus, John tells us. I'm sure John was going for his head, not just his ear. Peter was going for the, for the kill shot. Jesus all along has taught them to love their enemies and do good and to be kind to those who are ungrateful and evil. And Peter is not getting it. So who were his enemies? Jesus not only taught these values, he is in the process of living it out in this very episode. Uh, he is loving his enemies. And who are his enemies here? Who is he loving? Because he's letting the scriptures be fulfilled. He says that. And, and in another account, one of the other gospel accounts, I believe it's in John, this same episode, he says, Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not take the cup that the Father has given me? Shall I not go to the cross and bear the sins of my people? So who were his enemies? All these disciples. Not just the people who came at him with swords and clubs, but everybody became his enemies. Everybody abandoned him, he tells us. Verse 50, all, they all left him and fled. And here we see Jesus loving those who have rejected him, loving those who have abandoned him, loving those who have come at him with swords and clubs. And we've got this strange last couple of verses of this section about this young person, this young man who followed him and he was just wearing a linen cloth and they grab him too because he's following along. And then uh, they, they try to grab him and apparently they grab the linen cloth and he runs away naked. It's, maybe it's just showing us that everybody left him and, and people were so eager to get away they would run away naked 
to get away from Jesus at this point. He had not a friend in the world at this point in his life. Now, a couple of points that I want to make by way of application. Two points. And the first is this. Jesus is bringing in a new regime. Uh, he, he's bringing in a new kingdom. And if we want to be part of the new regime, we've got to recognize our weakness. It, it's not a bad thing. You look at the disciples. Peter was emphatic. Uh, we looked at the last couple of weeks. He was emphatic. All these other losers here at the upper room, they may abandon you, Jesus, but I'm not going to. And, of course, Jesus says, you're going to even deny me. He, along with the other disciples, abandoned Jesus, not only abandoned him physically, but abandoned the values and the ideals that Jesus taught. He's swinging a sword around, trying to kill his enemies, not love his enemies. And ultimately, as we said, he denies Jesus. Even this man that's unidentified, some traditions say that this was Mark, the, the writer of our gospel, that he's the young man. He would have been alive at that time, and he would have been a young man. And Mark's kind of inserting himself in the story, kind of like Alfred Hitchcock. You know, if you see Alfred Hitchcock movies, he always appears in some minor, uh, minor role in his films, just as his little signature. And some people think that Mark's putting his signature uh, on the gospel of Mark, and maybe he was that young man. But we have no way of, of knowing if that's true. I don't know that it's a significant uh, verse. I think it's just one of those wonderful verses in the scriptures uh, that you wonder, why in the world is this here? And to me, it's proof that it's true. Because if you were making this stuff up, you wouldn't write that. I mean, you're writing about this poignant, uh, important event in the life of Jesus, him being arrested and betrayed by one of the twelve that, that uh, sat under his teaching for, for, all, for these three years. And here he is abandoning him. And then out of the blue he talks about some young guy who runs away naked. I mean, you don't write things like that when you're, when you're making up a story and a legend and you want uh, Jesus to look good and you want to promote him. But little details like that uh, tell us of the truth. It, it's there because it really happened. And Mark's recording it for us. And that gives us faith in God's Word. Now, another uh, view of this is that you see this man fleeing, running away naked from those who were bearing the sword, just like all the disciples. It reminds us of others who ran away naked. Take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed. And they were expelled from the garden. And there was a, a cherubim placed at the gate of the garden with a flaming sword so that they could not come back in. And maybe Mark's taking us back to the Garden of Eden and reminding us of our own weakness, helplessness, and sinfulness as we see all of his followers abandoning him. Those who had the greatest resolve they, they had, uh, in the upper room, they had the strong will. They expressed that they were going to stick by Jesus. And here they are failing the test. Just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And I believe that Mark is telling us, look, you're weak. Even his 
closest followers and friends abandoned him and failed because they did not understand that they needed his grace. They needed his mercy. They needed his help and his strength. Paul got it. In his weakness, Paul said, I am strong. In my weakness, I am strong, he said. Because that's when, when we recognize that we're weak, that's when we receive his grace. That's when he comes alongside and gives us strength to do and to be what he's called us to be. So Mark is pointing us to the fact that if we want to be part of his regime, part of a new regime, a new kingdom, the first thing we've got to do is recognize our weakness. Recognize that it's not through our own willpower or strength or our own uh, wits or cleverness that we enter that kingdom and remain in that kingdom and walk in that kingdom, but it's through recognizing our weakness, coming to him, saying, I need you every hour, leaning upon him, resting in him. And the second thing that I want to point out here uh, is not only if you want to be part of the new regime, you have to recognize your own weakness, but if you want to be part of his new regime, you have to embrace the values of his kingdom. There were people throughout history, there have been people throughout history who profess Christianity, but they lived uh, under the values of the kingdom of the world. We can think of the Crusades. You know, those men who were part of the Crusade, they went out in the name of Christ, killing and conquering and you know, building an empire, basically, trying to take back Jerusalem. They were doing it through their own power and through their own force, not through love and mercy like Christ did. We can fall into the same trap. We can try to put forward God's kingdom through force, through our own strength, through our own power. But that's not the way it happens. If you would follow Jesus, if we would follow Jesus, then we must value his upside-down values, his values that are counterintuitive to our own values, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, uh, to lend without expecting anything in return, to be like Jesus, because it says there in Luke that he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. So, yeah, the first point, we recognize our weakness. That's when we experience mercy. And then as we experience that mercy, share it with others and show it by reflecting the values of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ our Lord. Show mercy and love to others as you have been shown mercy and love to others. We have a phrase in our uh, English language that comes from this text, the kiss of death. And the kiss of, we often use the kiss of death as something that happens to us, uh, and we think of it as, as an omen. You know, it's a good thing that happens to us, but it's an omen of something bad coming. You know, uh, it's a kiss of death. Uh, every time, uh, uh, one, one year, every time... Uh, my favorite football team, won the coin toss, they lost. So winning the coin toss became the kiss of death. That's kind of a trivial uh, example. We use the term that way. But here we have Judas uh, coming to him, uh, kissing him, 
And you would think that's a good thing. He's greeting him warmly. But no, it led to his death. That's when we call it the kiss of death. But you know, it's really not a correct term because this kiss of death was really the kiss of life. It was through Christ's death that something good came, that something wonderful came, uh, our salvation, the fact that we can be shown mercy and we can experience the love of Christ and his grace and mercy and all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. That's the kingdom that's offered to us. He's our king, and may all of us embrace his values and his lordship over our lives. Let's pray together.